Mark chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. And they came over the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him, and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God, that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit." As we're continuing this series, we're asking the question this morning, can the extremely wicked be saved? As we look around us in the world today, we recognize there are some incredibly evil, wicked, vile people. One might ask, is it possible for someone so evil to be saved? I believe we find the answer to that question in this passage of Scripture, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But by way of introduction, would point out three great miracles make up the content of this chapter. However, if you include the last paragraph of chapter 4, there are four consecutive miracles recorded by Mark which illustrate the four categories of miracles Christ performed in his earthly ministry. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, we see Christ ruling over nature. In Mark chapter 5, the first 20 verses, Christ ruling over demons. In verses 25 through 34, Christ restoring the health of one who is ill. And as well, in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, Christ's power to raise the dead. These miracles demonstrated the divine power of the Lord Jesus Christ, revealing Him as being the Son of God. Mark chapter 5 can be divided into three major uh, parts. You have the first part, is the miracle of the cleansing of the demoniac. The second, the miracle of the healing of the woman with an issue of blood. And the third would be the miracle of the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. Now, as we get into our text, we recognize this, is, uh, this story is also recorded in the Gospels of Matthew and in Luke. It's interesting to note the Gospel of Matthew speaks of two demoniacs in recording this miracle, but Mark and Luke only speak of one of them. That doesn't mean there's a contradiction in the Bible. That doesn't mean we've all, all of a sudden found an error in the Scripture. No, it simply means Mark, Matthew, excuse me, Matthew was giving more detail, whereas Mark and Luke are dealing with the highlights, and in this case, most likely the, uh, the prominent of the two characters. So this is not a contradiction. It's simply one gospel is giving us more information about this event than the other two. But following our series in the Gospel of Mark. That's what we're dealing with as we look at this event. It occurred right after the calming of the storm of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus crossed the sea and came to the country of the Gadareans, according to verse 1, where he encountered this demoniac. We'll find that no matter how much a man is possessed 
and controlled by evil, no matter how wild and mean a person can be, no matter how wicked an individual may seem to be, Christ can deliver that soul from eternal destruction. By Christ saving this man, Jesus proved he is God. And by, in being God, he is able to save to the uttermost even the most wicked human being imaginable. So this message we see here deals with that subject. No one is hopeless in the eyes of God. Some of us looking at people, we say that person's hopeless. There's no chance for that individual. They're too wicked. They're too far gone. All with Christ. There's hope. Scripture says in Ecclesiastes, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Where there's life, there is hope. And so here we're going to see three things about this individual in this situation. First, we notice this man's condition. Again, in verses 2 through 5, we just read that. Our text begins with this man who is truly hopelessly possessed by this demon. He was without Jesus. The wretched condition of the demon possessed is described in detail. Mark's purpose is not to point out information to humiliate this man, to make fun of him, or to speak little of him, but it's to show the depths of the depravity this man had sunken into and the extent of the evil of his possession. This man had reached rock bottom, but Jesus is God. And because God cares for and has the power to deliver even the vilest of sinners, this man, as hopeless as he appeared to everyone else in that area, standing before the Lord, there is hope. That which prompted or necessitated the miracle was the condition of this man. His condition, we can see, Mark gives us some highlights about this, and that's what we'll do is we'll touch on several of these things. Notice in verse 2, this man had an unclean spirit. When he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. This man was controlled by an evil power, by demons that dwelt with and defiled the body. Satan and his forces never make someone clean. It is the work of Satan, it is the work of his cohorts to harm people and to make them unclean in the eyes of the Lord and to do all he can to defile them, to drive them deeper into despair. This man represents those who who are lost and undone and who are controlled by anything whether it be a power or a person, he is controlled by someone or something other than the Spirit of God. By the way, that's the condition of all mankind today who is lost. Psalm 14, verse 3 declares, They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Romans 8, 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. What are the things of the flesh? Galatians 5.19 Now the works of the flesh are manifest. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, 
idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It is clear... Heaven is reserved for those who choose to follow the Lord and accept or receive those robes of righteousness as promised in Scripture. Those who choose to follow Satan and walk the path of sin and unrighteousness, they are the, the doers of these works that Paul outlined in Galatians. And as a result, they are manifesting outwardly the wickedness of their heart. They're demonstrating, if you will, the evil by which they are possessed. And let me say this here. We're talking about someone who's demon-possessed. And you say, well, that's not really a problem today. Oh, yes, it is. All around the world, demon possession is a real difficulty for many. And I believe it it's exists here in America today. I believe we see it in a different form. I believe we see Satan and his workers, demons at work in the lives of people all around us. These folks are being empowered. They're being moved. They're being motivated by an evil spirit, by wickedness. But notice something else about this man's condition. He lived among the tombs. Verse uh, 2 it says there met them out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. In verse 3, who had his dwelling among the tombs. The tombs, what were those? They were large holes hewn out of limestone hills. One archaeologist wrote, Jewish cemeteries were always located outside the city or town. This was necessary because Jewish law said that a person became temporarily defiled if a grave was touched. Some of the cemeteries were located around limestone hills or mountainous terrain. This enabled men to find caverns or else to hew out tombs in the limestone facing. The tombs were often large enough for a person to stand in. One could walk among these tombs, which is one thing, but this man lived among the tombs. It meant he was in the place of the dead and the unclean. And according to Numbers chapter 19, verse 13, this man therefore had no standing before the Lord. Whosoever toucheth the dead body of a man that is dead, and purifieth not himself, defileth the tabernacle of the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from Israel. Because the water of separation was not sprinkled upon him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is yet upon him. Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, reminded them once they were saved, they were enjoying the blessings of God. But prior to being saved, they were in the same condition. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And may I say this, every one of us who are saved, yes, at one time we walked according to the prince of the power of the air. We walked in wickedness and darkness. We walked as those who were dead and unclean. But thanks be to God, the redemption given to us of the, through the Lord Jesus Christ is, uh, makes us clean 
being in his sight. We're saved. We're redeemed. We're born again. We're washed in the blood. We're no longer a child of Satan, a child of darkness. We are children of God. But everyone born into this world is born in sin in this same condition. This this evil spirit, this wickedness caused this man to dwell in the darkest place imaginable. And no doubt living in darkness and living in this place aggravated his condition. But you know, many today both love and walk in darkness. John 3.19, Jesus said, This is the condemnation, that light is come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Something else about this man's condition? He was uncontrollable. Verse 3, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains. And then verse 4, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. The picture here is this man is untamed, wild, mad, violent, ill-tempered, and often possessing what appeared to be superhuman strength. All human effort to not only restrain him, but to help him failed. He could neither be helped, controlled, or calmed. He represents not only the uncontrollable evil or depravity of man, but also the helplessness of man to deliver or to save himself. People seek to find favor with God through many avenues today, but unless they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, they will fail. They will come short, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And no matter how good a life somebody tries to live, no matter how righteous someone seeks to be, they will find, according to the book of Isaiah, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the eyes of God. Mankind today of their own effort and own ability is helpless in their attempt to be like God. So what does mankind do in his depravity and in their failings in trying to be like God? Romans 1.25 declares, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. Jumping down to verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, Murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them. How tragic for those who seek to be like God and find themselves falling short and therefore turn deeper into sin by choosing to follow the paths of the unrighteous. 
Romans 3, verse 10 that I referred to earlier, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way and are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. It's commendable that people in that area tried to help this man, but try as they may, their efforts were insufficient. They fell far short. Last thing we notice about this man's condition, he did himself much harm. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. First we notice, always, night and day, beloved, sin never satisfies. It always demands more. The sinner is looking for new thrills, new adventures, new activities, new, a new rush, a new high, all of which bring more discontentment. Only the Lord can bring contentment to the heart of a soul and a wayward person. Psalm 107 verse 9, For he satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. But not only that, we see sin causes disfigurement, discomfort, and pain. You know, sin leads people to do themselves great harm. Sin leads people to do things to themselves that can bring about no good. 1 Kings 18.28, we have an example of the worshipers of Baal who cut themselves in a very similar fashion to this man who was possessed by a devil. 1 Kings 18, 28, they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. Beloved, this practice was condemned by the Lord. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28, the law declared, ye shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you. I am the Lord. Tattoos, piercings, brandings are but some of the ways in which people disfigure their body by sin. But what about alcohol, tobacco, drugs, immorality, and a host of other things? The smoker has an incessant cough. Drink destroys the liver. The junkie begs for another fix. And loose morals bring deadly debilitating diseases. Beloved, sin never quits. It never gives up. It always torments those who are in bondage to it. In fact, Romans 6, uh, 16 tells us, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Many today are slave to their sin. And as a result, their condition just gets worse and worse and worse. And like this man... They find there is no hope. No hope in mankind. That there is hope in the Lord. Notice this man's conversion. We see in verses 8 through 17. And by the way, to avoid any confusion over this next point, let me, let me have you look at something. Verse 8, For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, what is thy name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. 
That is in response to verse 6, where the scripture said, when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him. Now that's false worship. That's not the man, the individual coming to Jesus and worshipping him. That is the demon coming to the Lord and bowing down before him. But it's false worship because Satan and his forces never worship God in spirit and in truth as the scripture demands. It was the demon addressing Christ, and demons do not worship the Lord. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 warns us, No marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of life. Sin is deceitful, trying to make itself look pious, and a lot of nonsense we see called worship today is nothing more than the outward demonstration of the flesh or of the wickedness that is in man's heart. A lot of people claim their worship is acceptable because it's all right in their eyes. No, no. Jesus said, they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Beloved, God desires a tender, loving, submissive heart in this matter of worship. Not a demanding, condescending, self-righteous, self-serving type worship like we see many touting today. So please understand this idea in verse 6 that he came and worshipped. That's Satan. That's not this man. The demon that had possessed this man says, I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. How interesting the tormentor asks for tolerance. This is akin to the unrelenting anti-Christ crowd today who demands tolerance but gives none in return. We hear this demon and the Lord dealt with him. And though demonic forces be strong, Christ has never met a demon. He couldn't cast out or conquer. Well, the three significant changes that take place in regard to this demoniac's conversion are number one, this man's adoration. Notice in verse 15. And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting. The Gospel of Luke adds to this. He was sitting at the feet of Jesus. This man was resting in the Lord's presence. When one is truly born again, there's a desire to be with Jesus, to sit at his feet and to learn of him That's why Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But not only that, we see this man's appearance. He was sitting and he was clothed. Luke again, in chapter 8, verse 27, adds this. And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man, which had devils a long time and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house, but in the tombs. This man was naked. He was unclothed. He was living in the wild like an animal. Someone has well said, where sin abounds, clothes do not. It's no secret that sin causes poor dress, poor standards. Whenever Christ has done a work in the heart of a believer, there is an improvement in their dress. Unbecoming. An immodest dress in our churches exposed the fact many Christians have a spiritual problem in this area. 
Paul, addressing this when writing to Timothy, said, In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. May I add, I don't believe God has double standards. I believe He expects women to adorn themselves in modest apparel. He expects the same of men. I believe if He asks women to conduct themselves with shamefacedness and sobriety, He expects the same of men. This man's appearance immediately changed as he sat before the Lord. Those who came from town and they observed this man who was a wild man who caused them great fear and harm, who did himself much harm, who ran around as a wild man, was unclothed, and now all of a sudden he's sitting calmly clothed before our Lord. And then not only that, Notice his attitude, his adoration, sitting at the feet of Jesus, his appearance, he's clothed, his attitude. He's in his right mind. After the demons were driven from him, this man was in his right mind, which goes to say, beforehand, he was not in his right mind. I believe many mental problems today are the result of sin. True, some mental disorders are biological in nature. But I believe many in our mental institutions today are there because of sin. Guilt in itself can drive a person insane. Sin causes people to be troubled of mind and soul. And as a result, they have to deal with great pain that comes along, not only with the physical sufferings and hardships, but as well the mental difficulties they face. This man certainly was a picture of that. But how ironic the world would have us to think that following Christ is stupid, crazy, unintellectual, and foolish. Now, the Bible says it's the fools, not the wise, who reject God. Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. Again, Romans chapter 1, verse 20, an amazing chapter. You should read it from the whole chapter and get the context here. Paul lays out the depravity of mankind, the depth to which his sin would take him, and the confusion that comes as a result of not thinking like God, not knowing God, and not worshiping God. But verse 20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools." Beloved, the followers of Jesus Christ are no fools. It's those who reject God. Those who choose to say, I'll go another way. I'll follow my own path. I'll pioneer my own trails. I'll choose to do what I want. I'm not going to follow the cause of Christ. I'm not going to be named with Christianity. They have that right. They have that privilege. In fact, we see those who came from the village. See, word was sent to them what happened with the casting out of the demon and how the demons possessed 
the swine and how the swine ran down the hill and drowned themselves. So there's a group that came out to investigate what happened. And they came to a logical conclusion based on the facts. But then they made a very illogical decision because they said to Jesus, we want you to go away. We see what you did for this man. But at what expense to us because of our livelihood? It's been harmed. Jesus, go away. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Friendship with this world is enmity with God. People who are wicked, people whose hearts are hardened to the truth of God's word, choose the world over God. And it costs them in the end. Beloved followers of Christ are not fools. We are the possessors of great comfort and great consolation. For Paul in writing to Timothy said, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Well, we see not only this man's condition, his conversion, but notice his character. Verses 18, 19, and 20. We see the man's desire in verse 18. When he was come into the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. This man was naturally thankful and immediately wanted to become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. The statement prayed him is the language of earnestness. It's an indication of the great passion of the request this man made to Jesus. The man was very earnest about going to be with the Lord. And so, everyone who's truly saved ought to be equally earnest in their desire to be with the Lord. Psalm 105 verse 4 tells us, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face evermore. In Philippians 3.10, Paul wrote, That I might know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering. Peter 2 Peter 3.18 tells us, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and forever. Yes, the truly redeemed ought to have a desire to be with the Lord and to be like the Lord, that we might benefit greater as we walk with Him. But notice something else about this. It's interesting, verses 19 and 20. We see this man's service. Howbeit, Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed, and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. Though this man wanted to be with Jesus, our Lord saw something unique in him, and it determined, of course... He, knowing everything, knew that this man would be a good evangelist. So Christ refused the man's request. But this was not a rebuke. It was an assignment, a task, a commission. This man was to testify where he was best known for who would know better than those he lived around. God had done a great work in his life. The place of service was Decapolis. 
Decapolis is the name of the province east of the Jordan River where this man lived. These people desperately needed the testimony of Christ. How do we know that? They'd already told him to leave. They had already said, leave, please leave here. Don't stay. We don't want you around anymore. Does anybody need Christ more than someone who says, I don't want you? Yeah. So, he had a place to serve. He had a people to reach. We notice he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. You know, God's plan for service is nowhere as difficult as we sometimes make it seem to be. What does it take for a person to be an evangelist for the Lord Jesus Christ? Say, well, after all, they have to be saved. They have to be called of God to the ministry. They have to go to Bible college. They have to be trained. No, no. This man simply went about telling others what God had done for him. How simple a task set before us. Every one of us can do the work of an evangelist. Every one of us can proclaim the good news Jesus saves. We sing about it in church. Why don't we talk about it out in the ranks of the unsaved? Why don't we tell others what he has done for us? Giving someone a gospel tract, sharing with someone your testimony, inviting them to church, Telling someone, let me tell you what the Lord did for me. That's what this man did. It wasn't tough. It wasn't difficult. Psalm 26 verse 7 says, That I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all thy wondrous works. Isn't that what we're talking about? Psalm 145 verse 5. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and thy wondrous works. Beloved, Romans 10 verse 17 says, So then, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. People who are not saved need to hear the truth of God's word. That's why Jesus in one-fifth of the Great Commission, as this part is recorded in the Gospel of Luke, said that and repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations Beginning at Jerusalem. He said, start right here and spread out. Tell everyone Jesus saves. Tell everyone there's a God in heaven that's provided a way of salvation. Tell everyone they don't need to spend an eternity apart from Christ. And notice the result here, the praise of his service. All men did marvel. We don't have an indication as to numbers here. Numbers is really not the issue. The fact of the matter is the message went out. People marveled. And I believe lives were changed. In spite of the hardness of the people in that area, the testimony of this man resulted in praise for Christ. The marveling was about the work Jesus Christ did in this man's life. Psalm 44, verse 8. In God we boast all the day long and praise thy name forever. In conclusion, Jesus demonstrated two things through this miracle. He demonstrated his power and ability to deliver 
someone from the greatest depths of sin. And he also demonstrated his desire to reach whosoever will. He could have dealt with the people who were of sound mind. He could have dealt with the people in that village, but no. It was the demonic that approached him. And it was that man whom Jesus reached with the truth. The question at the beginning then, can Jesus really save someone who is incredibly, incredibly wicked? The answer, a resounding yes. What a great story we have here. And the amazing thing is, it's not just a story. This is not a fable. It's not a parable. It's not a myth. This is an event that took place. And in the realms of glory today, there are these two men who were demon-possessed, came to Jesus, living in the tombs without hope. And Jesus changed them and made them new creatures in Christ. That puts them on the same plane as every one of us today. Sinner saved by the grace of God. What a wonderful, wonderful Savior.